podcast. I'm Scott Barstow. And I'm Anders Bramwell. So Anders, big news today. It's been some time, first of all. Uh, it has been some it time. It has been some time. Yes, we but apologize. The, yes. Do we really? Do we really <laughs> apologize? Probably not. Yeah. So there, there's big news afoot here in, uh, here on my street. And the big news yeah. is that, uh, that we now have fiber to the home. Wow. Wow. Welcome to the modern era. Yes. Yes. Welcome to the 1990s. That's right. That's right. So yeah. here's the here's the interesting thing. AT and T currently is the only provider on the street. Okay. And so I get a I get an email a couple of days ago. Hmm. It says, Hey, the service is ready. We're ready to, you know, come out and install it in the house. Uh go ahead and sign up. Love so it. I go to I go to sign up. Okay. Schedule my install time and I'm going through the checkout process, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I get to this part, I get to the terms and conditions. Yeah. And and so there's this it was this special promotional offer, of course. Uh as you it know, always. Yeah. As it always is. Yeah. So I start reading the terms and conditions just for the fun of it. Uh-huh. And because this is what I do. I read <laughs> terms and conditions for the fun of it. That's why you listen to the show. That's right. And here's what's interesting. So ATT has a clause in the terms and conditions that says, look, for this special promotional offer, we get to inspect all of your traffic from everybody on your network and send you ads what? all the time. Really? Yeah. All the time. So how, how do they intend to, on sending you ads? I don't know if it's, uh, if they, my only guess is they inject ads in, I don't know. I don't know how they're doing it. Yeah. But they, I don't know if it's like they send you promotional emails all the time. So there was no mm-hmm. details about how the ads would be delivered. Yeah. Only that all of your traffic would be subjected to their brains. To their sniffing. Yeah. To their sniffing. And then they would be, they would have the liberty mm-hmm. of sending you ads. I saw you signed this, right up. I did. I, I couldn't get enough of it. So yeah. I was like, please give me, give me, give me, give me. Love it. So down in the, down in the lower right-hand corner in the tiniest of print, mm-hmm. it says, or you can sign up for our standard offer. Okay. And the standard offer has no ads. No ads. What's so the, the price? Dif- yeah. The difference, the pr- difference in price is $30 a month. Wow. So it's, it, yeah, so it's $70 a month if you want to get uh, blasted by their ad machine. So they think that they can make more than $30 a month yep. doing this. That's right. Can you believe that? Uh, I can. I mean, I guess I, it's obvious that can. you can believe it because this is, we know that it's with happening. Google Fiber. They have it now. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, but it was, what was interesting to me is that that was the default path mm, yeah. that they gave you. Mm-hmm. And they made it very difficult for you to choose this other path. And they made it sound like uh, in the, in the, in the text and things, it was like, well, you can take this other path, but you've got to pay an install fee and all this other things, mm-hmm. which, by the way, you didn't have to. They still waive the install fee. Yeah, right. And, but they made it – they made you feel like you would be an idiot to not take this deal. Yeah. And it was also a – I think the other thing they promised was a price guarantee for like two years or something like that. Right. Uh, but it was it was interesting uh, – 
Is so it, because I was, I really, you know, in those things, I, I typically don't pay attention. I'm just kind of blowing through it, signing up. Of course I want gig service to my house, so I'm just going to sign up for it. Oh, so this is gig service. This is one gigabyte service? It is. That's very nice. So um, I'm interested, what, are, what is the price that you pay? So you pay $100 a month. Holy cow. All right. So first of all, a little, a little history, as we always do on the show. We have to. 1995 was a good year. I had a T1, a fractional T1. It was it was screaming along at a 250k uh, option. Yeah, <laughs> it that, was, and it was blazing. And fast. that was the fastest. Right, that was that was or, like an order of magnitude faster than any anything else in the neighborhood. Yeah, because it, it was yeah, the your other option was like a modem at 19.2k. It, it was, it was, right. and the, and that's that's you know the equivalent of a of a snail. So, so this fractional now T one can go up to one point five megabits. So at two hundred and fifty or two hundred forty k, whatever it was, uh, it, it's it's way less than a single megabit. And you're you're so and and for that pleasure of screaming along at a quarter of a megabit, I was paying two and a half thousand dollars a month. Yeah. So you're saying for a hundred bucks a month, you don't get a megabit, you get a thousand times a megabit. Yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's pretty good. However, that's comparable to, and, and then you say it's $30 off, so 70 bucks. That's right. So if you want ads. to get it blasted with the ad machine yeah. uh, and, be, and have all of your personal life exposed to the AT&T ad machine, right. uh, you, that you can do that for, seven, for so $70 now, a month. The knee-jerk reaction on that is that's absolutely crazy. I would never do that. However... We kind of already do that. With we do. Google That's exactly and, right. Right? Yeah. Yep. So what's certainly so, with Facebook, certainly right. with Google, anything, any of your browsing that you're doing, any of your searching is all being subjected to their very yeah, same just different ad companies' ad machines. Yep. So it's it's really interesting that it hits on such a visceral level because it's very clear that they make probably well more than thirty dollars a month for the pleasure of of uh, serving you ads. Uh, so th- that you know, you could you could just extrapolate that other companies that have uh, you know have a cookie in your browser uh, that that are serving ads broadly. One would be Amazon because you know you search Certainly. for a product and and then every other site you go to that happens to have Amazon ads or they're hawking that same product at you. Yeah, they're um, retargeting you. Yeah, those stupid slippers will not will not leave no matter what w- browser window you open. So uh, it's just really visceral because it's boiled down to a dollar figure now. Now you know what Amazon must be making off of you for advertising. That's um, right. That's that's very interesting. And and yeah. so in in the fiber space, actually, we're about to get competition here in the uh, Boston Cambridge area. Right now, I have uh, Verizon files for which I pay about forty five bucks a month all in. Uh, and it's, I don't know how fast it is. It's fast enough, fast enough to run a Bitcoin node and Ethereum node and do, and not even feel it with all my, you know, stuff. And so it's probably 25 megabits. Fast, Um, fast enough that you don't, that you don't even care. The technology is out of the way. It is. It's, it's really the, the, the best, the, the biggest value to me in fiber service is that it doesn't go down. 
I, I would pay $1,000 a month for the connection that I have because I don't have to – it goes down less than the power does. And I've, I literally live next to a power plant. Yeah. The power goes out you know, maybe once, a, once every year or two, and the fiber basically never, never goes out. Yep. So that the, – you just don't have to – it's a headache you just don't have to deal with. Uh, so that's, it's, uh, that's, that's interesting. That's very interesting. We're, we're about to get, so Google bought a, a another player and so they're, uh, they're coming to town with Google yeah. fiber here. So you'll be dealing with the same thing with Google fiber. And the, the thing of it for me was not, it's not that, uh, I have the naivete to think that I'm not being advertised to or that all of my right. stuff isn't being, right. it's just the, there's something about the in your face nature of this. And yeah. I think you're right. It was like they actually attached a dollar amount to what it was worth. Yeah. Uh, and the and the other thing is that, as we've talked about on this show, I use uh, for all of my search, I use DuckDuckGo, not Google. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've started and, to as well. And the and so it's not that again. It's not because I believe that I that I don't live in this surveillance state where everything I'm doing is you know, analyzed to the nth degree and I'm being targeted so specifically based on what I'm doing. It's not that I don't believe that or just accept that to be true, but I also, uh, I don't think that you have to just capitulate at every turn. Um, Mm -hmm. and there are parts of your life that you can sort of withhold. And the thing of it is that let's say I agree to it. Let's say I'm okay with it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, somebody who shows up at my house and needs to get on my network doesn't mean they're agreeing to it, but they right, are right. just by showing up at my house, getting on my network. Now they're a part of AT&T being able to market as well. And I just started thinking through, you know, do I really, it just felt like, uh, it just felt like a bit more of a turn of the dial to me for some reason. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, for sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'd be very interested in technically how they do this because, of course, you can put a packet sniffer on port 80, right, and see what traffic is going by. Or or do they require the machines in your house to have some kind of a plug-in that ensures that you are, you know, kind of watches your traffic for you and, and uh, you know, maybe serves up ads on the bottom of your screen Uh or, you know, because in that case, somebody, a guest of yours staying in the house for a day or whatever, using your internet connection wouldn't see that and right. also wouldn't be, uh, uh, you know, be subject to it. But the but the other thing is, like, if all the sites you're going to are HTTPS, which most, most tend to be to these days. That's right. You can't really deep packet inspect that. You can tell basically what IP they're going to and that's it from the network side. So it must be some kind of a plug-in based thing, and if you don't, if you're not running the plug-in, eventually the 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 deal expires or something like that. Yeah. So they they don't do a great job of explaining all huh. of all of the how, huh. yeah. it, which also bothered me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and the, and the, so the other thing I thought would be, do you use? Uh, this brought me. I started thinking more about like ad blockers and all this stuff as I was working through this decision. By the way, I ended up taking the standard thing instead of the promo deal. Because for thirty bucks, I'd rather just not have it. I'd rather not have not, not have I'd, to I'd deal with it. No, whatever, oh. whatever it is, and I don't want to be targeted all the time. I know I already am, mm-hmm. but I also those are. And you and I have talked about this before. 
like I don't go on sites like Facebook with by with my primary browser. So in Chrome, I don't go on Facebook mm-hmm. because I don't want to be targeted all over the internet uh, by Facebook, and I guess or be tracked all over the internet by Facebook. And so if I if I ever go on Facebook, which is once every three months. I do it in a browser that I don't care about, like mm-hmm. Firefox or something like that. Um, but the the thing of it was for me, I've started using, and I don't. I'd be curious if you do. Do you use ad blockers on your phone or on your primary browser? No, now? I don't use ad blockers on my phone, but I, uh, you know, I I also don't see ads on my phone, so I don't see it as a as a problem. I if if I did, I would. Yeah. So, um, and I think I don't browse much on my phone. No, right. That's, right, that's so if you're in an app, you're not seeing ads unless it's, you know, you're in Facebook or something like that. Yeah. Uh, which, which I never use. So, yeah. But I started about uh, probably three, four weeks ago, I started, I put an ad blocker on Chrome because yeah. I was tired of getting all these Amazon retargets and yeah, all the sure. things you were just talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, let's just see how good ad blocking is. And it's pretty good. I gotta tell you, yeah. I see a, I see a lot less, and it's funny. I was on Times website the other day, and they that now these sites have started splashing. Hey, you're running an ad blocker. Our site would be way better if you un, you know if you if you undid that if huh? you undid that. Yeah, right. It's like, so it's it's this constant, and we've been seeing this ever yeah. since the internet was invented, or ever since ads were invented, going all the way back to banner ads and. There's this yeah. ongoing war between people who want to advertise and people who don't want to be advertised to. So yeah, that's true. But uh, if like it or not, the business model of the internet is one of advertising. If the web had started, it, the the con- the conversation always goes back to Bitcoin, right? If the web had started and had some kind of a micropayment system also embedded. You know, aside from just, you know, also SSL, imagine we had SSL and a way to pay a micropayments channel. The business model of the web would not be ad supported right now, I don't think. You would you would pay a buck into your browser and you would parcel off, you know, fractions of a penny to each, uh, you know, content site that you went to. And that's that's how it would be supported. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it would be I think it would be a lot like uh a site like Spotify where you pay you're paying in some flat fee every month. Mm-hmm. And then Spotify in the back end of course is parsing out, you know, fractions of pennies to the artist every time you play a song. Right. And I think it would be the same model. Right. I I think that's a that's a so basically you have a centralized approach there where you have a company that's, you know, paying in aggregate a, a, a sizable amount to artists, but on a play-by-play basis, it's uh, you know not something that the existing financial system could support. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So speaking of speaking of Bitcoin and all of that fun, uh, what about uh, what what do you think about DAO and the fifty-three million dollar heist? The DAO. This or is was a- it a heist? That's right. This is a this is a really interesting topic for those who are not quite up to speed on this. The DAO or the DAO, the Distributed Autonomous Organization, is a contract on the Ethereum network. So it's not Ethereum. It is a contract on the Ethereum network 
um, Ethereum is like Bitcoin, a a uh, you know a way to move value, but also a, a far more capable smart contract platform. And this smart contract has the lofty goal of effectively replacing a VC. So a bunch yeah, of people so it's pay the in. first distributed VC fund, right? Uh, a bunch of people pay in, and the uh, you know depending on how much you pay in you get more and more of a vote on what's going on and also more and more you enjoy more and more of the profit so it's just commensurate with how much you put in and people make proposals and you you vote on them like i want to fund this one company called slocket which makes a uh a piece of smart property very interesting uh so uh, they go and they make their their items, and you are proportionally rewarded when they when they sell and when they make money, etc. So it's it's essentially proportioned ownership. Uh, very interesting, a very complex idea, but but very interesting. Um, so what Scott is talking about is there there were uh there was a a sale period where people would just pay into this contract if you wanted to uh have a vote and enjoy the profits and that and they had raised what like a hundred million bucks or something yeah, like, like about right? hundred and fifty million and and at times the the uh the price of ethereum made that worth about two hundred and twenty or something like that uh so a, a non non trivial amount of money uh People pay in, and then the then the voting the you know the initial disbursement closes, and I mean DAO DAO tokens are kind of interesting. You could you could trade them for other you know you could trade them back to Ethereum. You could sell them for Bitcoin or whatever you wanted. Uh, so it's actually really kind of a sort of a flexible system. Matter of fact, a lot of exchanges there were a number of exchanges that f- where you could swap DAO tokens for other things like dollars huh. and, and interesting whatever. So, so the idea was that you would put, let's say, I put five dollars, and this is a very simple example, obviously. Yeah. But the idea was I put five dollars into DAO, yeah, and then my five dollars plus everybody else's five dollars came up to a meaningful amount of money, and mm-hmm. then we would vote on whether or not we wanted to invest in ABC company. Yeah. And yeah. if we invested in ABC company and five years later, ABC company was sold for a hundred million, a hundred million dollars, yeah. I would make some portion. Yeah. You probably, that just, so I would 25 like, bucks or, you yeah, know, it's, yeah, it's like, it's like, uh, all the crowdsource or crowdsourced investing platforms that we're seeing spring up now that the jobs act is kind of passed everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it was the idea behind DAO was like democratized investing for for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the interesting thing that has happened, however, is some somebody out there found out that if you ex- if you create a contract in a certain way and you trigger this event in the main contract uh, you you could get the system to pay out the underlying ETH, the underlying value token of the Ethereum network, uh, you know, basically the $5. Pay out you, the principal, effectively. Pay out the principal to a new contract that that person controlled and, of course, would vote to send the money wherever they wanted. So a good amount, some $60 million or so initially, 
was was transferred this way into this new contract. Rules being as they are, that money is effectively locked up for some 25, 27 days or something like this. So the, the community had some, had a really interesting crossroad here. There was some time to come up with a decision of what we're going to do because the money is not actually gone. It's just sitting in a, a different pot that's mm-hmm. locked up for a bit. And, uh, and, and there was a clear kind of a, a, a timer. So the, now, as we said, the DAO tokens are running on the Ethereum network. So the Ethereum guys got together and said, you know what we could do? We could put something in that effectively makes the payout invalid, essentially replace the contract with a new contract that allows people to come along the original people to come along and get their $5 back, Mm. you know, just, just take their ETH back. And so they said, yeah, so we're going to do this. We'll, we'll put a patch together. We'll get it to the miners and they'll, they'll put it out there and then everybody will be, you know, we'll just wind this thing down safely. There's a few problems with that. Uh, One would be the fact that a uh, a blockchain is supposed to be an immutable, right. right? Right. So what we've got here now, now, so a little bit of context. The DAO, of course, is pretty big. Uh, to, you know, one hundred and fifty. Let's call it one hundred and fifty million dollars because the price of Ethereum went down when when this whole thing kind of played out. So so we, it's one hundred and fifty million dollars, a non-trivial amount of money. But that is about 14%, a little slightly more than 14% of all the ETH in the world was committed to the DAO. So very easy to argue that this is the top 10% of Ethereum holders because these people are aware enough that the DAO exists, know how to spend tokens to that DAO because they believe in the in the promise mm-hmm. and then uh you know kind of go forward to there however it is also quite clear that not a single one of them noticed this bug so you know because because dow token holders will consider that a bug you know there's sure. this thing in the code that could be exploited etc this is a right. difference between what was uh uh represented how the code works and how the code actually works. Mm-hmm. Two different things. Yeah. So you have the top, you know, the top 15% of Ethereum holders strongly wanting their money back and you cannot fault them for wanting their money back. But if they were to do this, it would a violate the uh the 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 prime kind of you know, feature of a blockchain, which is immutability. Uh, because if you could just throw this thing in there and roll the thing back and everybody goes home and happy, it also looks a lot like maybe the existing financial system that people in this world are trying to avoid. Right. And it also, it, it puts control of a future event. Let's say that something else happens and the majority of the community thinks that was maybe unethical or, it's something that the you know the primary stakeholders in the community disagree with. Then you also now you've set a precedent that oh oh I if, just go home to mom yeah, yeah I just run home and uh, there was a mistake so let's all wind the clock back and get our money back right and, so which I, violates the spirit of the network it absolutely does so let's say I'm a developer and I write a contract and 
you know, I, I think this contract is great, and I send 2,000 ETH to it. And as it turns out, the contract in reality has a bug, and it burns that ETH. It just makes it disappear. So why wouldn't I be able to go back to the Ethereum people and say, hey, I made a contract that has this huge hole in it, and I burned 2,000 ETH. Give me that yeah. ETH back. Let me right. get this back, and, and we'll go from there. Now, the, so, guy that, the guy that actually pulled off the – or found the bug and exploited it, if you will. Yeah. Uh, at least from the, what I was reading. The unknown. The yes. unknown. Uh -huh. uh, he, uh, he has claimed and, as far as I know, continues to claim that uh -huh. he did nothing illegal and uh -huh. that he will sue anybody who comes looking for the money that he has, in his he opinion, rightfully right. grabbed. Exactly. He's, he says – this person says they will use – legal jurisdiction to uh to you know to make their case and and that's going to be interesting because if this person actually does this they've got to bring a case to a court of law and that's going to happen in a certain jurisdiction and whoever is is on the other side of this has got to kind of show up as well uh, or else they lose by default so right. the the other thing that that would do is it would uh it would kind of you know bring regulation right you can you got to think that regulation is is going to look at precedent set in the courts it's going to set some precedent and then there's going to be some you know there's there would eventually be some regulation related to that so if the court were to uphold that uh, the code, bugs and all, warts and all, are is law. Then, uh, you know, which would be against, you know, which would be for against the Ethereum people, but for the 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 token, you know, not stealer, right? Somebody that that's walking away with the money in their mind legitimately. Um, it, it would just set this precedent that uh, you know. There is a definite buyer beware, and there is a definite like you know do your due diligence, understand what a contract does before you blindly send a hundred and fifty million dollars to it, et cetera, et cetera right so the 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 um industry is at a or the the this project and basically blockchains in general are at a crossroads you know if we if we say code is law. You can't change the blockchain, and you just got to let this $150 million go wherever it may. And yeah, now, a lot so of... do you think it's any different than, obviously, the way that you would potentially read through, uh, read through the code or whatever? It's, not, it's probably not a direct analogy, but really, is it any different than you uh, hearing about some deal and you getting the investment paperwork and reading through the investment contract in a traditional investment. And let's say there's a hole in the bottom of that bucket uh, in that regular mm -hmm. legal contract that says, look, turns out we can do whatever we want with this. Uh, it's great that you're giving us your five bucks, but we can take that $5 and, you know, go spend it on, on candidate, you know, or yeah. whatever. Mm -hmm. It's really no different. The only difference yeah. is I would argue is that the, who's doing the quote legal review is, in, in on the traditional sense as a lawyer, but in this case, it would be a developer, right? That's kind of reviewing the agreement. And this guy actually found the bug, you know, in the, in the quote agreement. Mm 
mm-hmm. or in the contract. And it's it's not a traditional lawyer that would find that uh, that bug. But legal contracts have bugs all the time, sure. right? And there's there's holes in them that people don't think about, and that's why people get sued, right? And, right? and so, so and you can bring a core if you have a a contract that that you know has a bug like this. You can bring suit and say that the this is what was you know this is what I thought I was getting into basically this is what I thought was you know the intent this is what was implied essentially mm-hmm. and then this person came in and you know did something that I didn't expect or was was not ready for so court roll this contract back and that kind of thing actually happens you know it happens all the time actually uh there are bugs in contracts so there is a court system that that handles that. There is not in the unforgiving world of the blockchain right now. Uh, if if we decide to graft on the court system and uh, you know have the court send out a a uh, you know a legal decree saying that we must rewrite the blockchain in this case for this contract for whatever. And then they go and go to the miners and effectively force them to do that because the miners are the gatekeepers of the blockchain. If they wholeheartedly decide to go a different way, the blockchain will go a different way. It's not, you know, at the end of the day, humans actually do control this. The other thing that this whole uh, uh, project has pointed out is the fact that we've not come to a world where we have no trust. We have simply shifted the trust to different parties. In in the case of Bitcoin, in the case of Ethereum, we've shifted it to many more parties than traditionally held the trust. Usually it was all bound up in one financial institution or one or another financial institution. And so you had to 100% trust one or another to the point where now you have to you know the the number of miners out there is you know it's it's not one it's it's many so you kind of have to trust them all in aggregate and it's a lot harder to kind of corrupt all of them so but at the end of the day there there is still trust in humans it's parceled out differently that's the only difference that we have here yeah and i don't it seems to me that at on some level it always comes back to trust in humans it, because humans are at some point building the system right. uh, that, you know, that allows all of this stuff to work. And I think it's, it's, a, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch if the Ethereum, you know, developers or whoever controls the project decides to do the whole rollback and pull this money back out. I think that's a, it probably – I think most people on the outside would say that's a really good idea because those people shouldn't get ripped off. But I think it probably sets a precedent that is not healthy for for the blockchain you know, as a tech. I think that's probably a bad move for the technology. Would you agree? Well, so I think there are a number of different ways to handle this. If the – if the uh, the DAO token holder that found this loophole and is siphoning the money out uh, goes to a court of law, there is a jurisdiction that that court of law is in, and then 
whatever the result of that is going to be, it's going to be either, hey, give the money back or he can keep the money. Uh, you don't have to rewrite the blockchain to actually do that. You can, That's true. You know, if he needed to send the money back, he would just you know, create a new transaction that sends the money back and the, the blockchain remains unaltered. The problem is if you're not involving a court of law and instead you're making a unilateral decision to rewrite the blockchain, that's, that's the real problem because yeah. that has implications beyond Ethereum. And remember, this is a problem with a DAO. This is not a problem with Ethereum, yet the Ethereum core developers are getting involved because... They have a vested interest. Uh, a matter of fact, the head of the Ethereum group, the guy that came up with it, 22-year-old named Vitalik Buren, he, uh, he actually said after this whole thing went down that he was buying up DAO tokens because, of course, he has the ability to write a patch and and you know he has a, a far more of an ability than i would for example to go get this actual this change actually done hmm. uh so you have this weird you know that would be in the in the markets considered insider trading for yes, sure for sure because he's able to s essentially predict that an event will happen and then profit from it when it does right effectively yeah so yeah. so there's some cross-pollinization here that's not healthy at the end of the day you have to realize that ethereum is separate from the dow it is the network on which the dow runs the dow has a you, for one in one view it's a bug another view it's hey it's just the contract and if it says i can siphon off money i can siphon off money and i'm going to do it that's not a problem with ethereum yet ethereum has the ethereum guys are effectively proposing a a change to the ethereum code that would nullify this one particular contract making them essentially the gatekeepers of the whole thing very very interesting story playing out right now i think huge implications here for uh what happens with blockchains <clears throat> very very important to understand that trust is not you, you don't have to you, it's not a completely you know trust is not completely taken away here there is a system that distributes trust in a different way and it has different moving pieces and moving parts uh, th that's the side to watch. I, I couldn't really care less which way the the DAO token stealer or you know the ETH, ETH stealer, if you want to call him that, or the the person taking advantage of the loophole in the contract, whether or not they get away with this or not. I really care about you know if if something is done about it, where is it done? Is it done in a court of law or is it done? changing the blockchain because if it changes the blockchain that has far-reaching implications court of yeah. law does too with precedent etc no question but in terms of the way the technology is billed you can't bill it as an immutable ledger if if you know it it, it mutes in a way that you know that if it mutates at all i mean uh, you know regardless of if, if something goes wrong goes against what you actually want uh and you can't do anything about it that would be uh in the long run a better a better way to uh, go because that's you know that's what the blockchain i think you should settle your 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 disputes 
uh, above that layer. Like, yeah, I agree with you. I think the I think if the uh, if the decision is made in court, then uh, and it doesn't matter which way that decision goes because if fifty million dollars, let's say Ethereum ends up, or it doesn't really matter. So if you look at the if you look at blockchain technology as a whole, this fifty million dollars will be absolutely immaterial. Drop in the bucket, in, yeah. In, mm-hmm. You know, in a few years, no one, it'll be like losing $5. And while the people who lost money, obviously it affects them directly or whatever, it's kind of, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, the Mt. Gox event early, early days of Bitcoin, where everybody <laughs> thought, you know, when Mt. Gox went under and, you know, took all of these people's money with it, that that was the, that was going to be the, that was the doomsday end. That's it. Of, it's of over. Bitcoin. The Bitcoin it's experiment over. has failed. That's right. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting. This has all of the same markers with people saying the same things. Right. That, that's right. See, this stuff really doesn't work and we really can't trust it. And I think in, we have to take a more macro view to say that these are bumps along the way mm-hmm. to figuring out how this technology should work where the rules are or what we didn't think about. And that's the great thing in my mind about it being technology uh, driven is that it really, we have to think of it as just a bug Mm -hmm. and it's no different than an exploit that allows somebody to get in and take a bunch of credit cards. It's just a decision that somebody made or didn't make that has allowed somebody else to take advantage of it in while that is unfortunate, and I don't want to make light of the fact that people have lost potentially lose real money in this, right? And we mm-hmm. don't want to we don't want to gloss over that because, but in a, it's also if you're investing in the Dow, and again we're talking about DAO, not DOW, um, <laughs> yes, because it's important to important. Is, but if you're investing in the Dow, that's a high. You have to know that's a highly speculative investment, and I would venture to say that most anybody who's put money into the Dow never cares if that money comes back. It's really just you would hope. it's a test. It is a test. Yeah, you you would hope that that is the I I agree. I think that, you know, virtual currencies are are highly highly speculative speculative. I would not invest in I would not consider this an investment. If you have 20 bucks and you would just as soon flush it down the toilet and the rest of your life could be totally unimpacted, then then play with, with virtual currencies like this. Put put twenty bucks in the Dow. Sure. If that's gonna change your life, don't do it. Yeah. Like this is not this is not uh you know, regardless of what the the industry wants to say, this is not gold yet. Right? We're we're this is still a early days. Yeah. Um, We're still wild, wild west. Yeah. Yeah. So, Very much wild, wild west. Yeah. So I, but I, I, I do think though that there is, there is clearly extraordinary promise here. There is not, this is not a, this is not a fad. This is something that's going to stay around. This idea of how we can uh, move value and how we can run a, uh, you know, Ethereum is a first kind of global virtual machine. The that is incredibly useful. Like I can see centralized services, like of course banks, but like of course Google and Facebook and and other entities on the internet migrating 
to to a system like this. Like you could deploy a service that has that is not run from any one data center somewhere or a small group of data centers, but instead is run on all the computers around the world at the same time. So, you know, downtime becomes not a thing that happens. Um, that's incredibly powerful. It is, it is the rewriting of how the, the, the pre the, you know, currently centralized players actually deliver service. That is extremely powerful. There, there is huge promise here. It's not nothing, uh, but it is, it is not something to put, you know, your four hundred one k in. It's just yeah. not. Yeah, and I would hope that most people who are putting their money in the doubt. I remember reading about it when they first came online, and yeah. I was like, oh, interesting. Uh, somebody's taking uh, the idea of venture capital and making it available to everybody. This makes total sense to me. And they're doing it in a way where hopefully concentration of power and decision-making is more network-based. A uh, really cool idea. And this is, you know, a month or so ago I was reading about it. And then, of course, this event happens. And it's just interesting to me to watch the reactions and watch whether it's mainstream media or even people in the tech space just, well, that's it. It's yeah. over now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. As opposed to just treating it, it's like it would yeah. be the equivalent of somebody saying, well, you know, there was a bug in Java, so we should just throw Java out the window. Yeah, right. So it's 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 the I mean, this is the ultimate popcorn event, right? You just pass a popcorn on this one. I mean, I'm going to sit back and watch and it's going to be very, very interesting. This looks to me. So you're absolutely right saying the Mt. Gox event was I mean, it was the end of Bitcoin. Everybody was saying like, well, Bitcoin is gone. That, that's crash. Well, clearly, no, it hasn't. A, a one single player with a, with a, you know, a horrible flaw was taken out. A weak player was taken out. That's really what happened with Mt. Gox. That's the same thing with the DAO. The DAO is dead. It is a fundamentally flawed contract. It is, you know, essentially Ethereum's Mt. Gox. Yes. And if if you really take that analogy, uh, in the long run, do we talk about Mt. Gox right now with, no. with nobody Bitcoin? even no. knows it happened? Right, nobody it's even cares. Non-event at this point. Many years ago, there was a an exchange happened to be the biggest one in the world at the time. But like many years ago, there was an exchange that stole all your money, and it's gone now. <laughs> so is that not good? I right. think people would argue, yes, that's great. It's good now. It's much better now. I think the same is, will will happen with the Dow. Now, granted, the Dow was a pretty drastic example, but at the end of the day, Mt. Gox was more drastic in terms of dollars lost. That's right. It was a so, bigger event. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, it's growing pains and, you know, I... I, I it, whoever whoever has had figured out that this loophole existed in this contract, uh, well done. <laughs> yeah, what do you, you think know? happens to the? It was uh, two guys that started the DAO, as I recall. What do you think? Mm. What do you think happens to them in all well, of this? Well, I mean, you know, this is you have to learn the lesson. It's a particularly public and a particularly hard one with so much money at stake. But you you now have a a much you know, now now you realize, oh, we have to put sort of due diligence in place on these contracts. I mean, there's a press to make uh, development environments help you not make stupid mistakes. 
Uh, there's, uh, you know, review process that, that has to go on. I mean, if you look at the contract kind of basic, some basic best practices were not followed. For example, if you have bucket A and bucket B and you want to pay five, you know, let's just call it $5 from bucket A to bucket B, the way that was being done inside the DAO it would go to bucket B, it would add $5, and then would go to bucket A and subtract $5. Well, of course, what happens if you add $5 to bucket B and then the program crashes? Right, which so is bucket A never gets deducted. Bu- bucket A doesn't get deducted. Essentially, the system thinks everything is totally fine. That's essentially the hack right there. That that was it. Mm-hmm. They were able to do a splitting without subtracting. You know, while skipping the sub- subtraction thing, basically letting it all. Oh yeah, we'll we'll get back to doing the subtraction later, and it queued up to a certain size, and then you know, well, you you have too many things to do, so we're going to shut down. So now suddenly you have twice the amount of money you had. How what sense does this make, right? So uh, I I think we're going to be much more careful uh, going forward. So I that's. That's, I think, the app. But what does it mean for these people? I mean, I don't, I don't exactly know. I, I'm. It's, it's clearly, it's very humiliating. But like, um, I It'd don't. It'd be interesting think... to see if they get sued or personal. Well, uh, right, or that, like that that will be interesting. But I don't think it was their intent. It was, in, in my opinion, it's clearly not their intent to have had this bug. I roll back time, and they would have fix this yeah, I, of I course. think because uh, i mean i'm sure they're putting money in this as well so yeah. it, it, that's it's it's a mistake it's not it, it is it, they clearly were not representing this contract as hey by the way uh, anybody can come along and steal all the money uh they clearly didn't know it was there wasn't malicious intent there so for them i think it's just going to be a learning uh, point and their you know contracts going forward they're going to scrutinize and they're probably going to have uh you know uh, like a QA step essentially a, some kind of a a step where before we go through with this contract we we look at it under a microscope um you know it's 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 anytime you're playing with value you know it's kind of very interesting we we have uh, this open source world that has made all kinds of interesting uh, applications where at the end of the day, if they crashed, it kind of wasn't the end of the world. But now you can make a mistake and maybe you forgot to carry the zero or the one or whatever it is, and suddenly actual value is lost. And it just raises the stakes on uh, on the sort of the the job to be done there uh, you yeah. can't you can't make a mistake in that environment it's it's kind of like writing a a, a contract uh you know that's supposed to stand up in the court of law it's got to be done right if you have a fundamental flaw in there you're going to have to argue it and and hope that the uh the judge finds in your favor i mean the the stakes are much higher yeah and i wonder if there's not an opportunity so i feel like there's this uh, typically when this stuff happens, the market uh, at least attempts to fix itself. Yeah. And I wonder if there isn't uh, an opportunity for a company to become this would be a bad example. But in SSL land, we have certificate authorities, right, that are that sit that will verify and validate that your site is who who it 
is pretend or who is purporting to be. Yeah. And I wonder if there's not a role for some kind of organization to do what you're talking about that they do, whether it's electron electronic due diligence or actual kind of code reviews in these authorities will say, look, this contract is good and valid and we will certify that it is and we will back it with, you know, maybe you get into some kind of insurance or something like that where organizations come along and with their stamp of approval, you know, the contract is now valid and has been reviewed by, you know, this body of people who you, uh, it's another layer of trust, I guess. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's funny how where where the software seems to be going or the discussion certainly seems to be going is kind of exactly the the way that contracts did way back in the day when we realized, oh, you know, it'd be really good if we had a court of law. Yeah. And oh, it'd be really great if, you know, we we established uh, a path for uh, somebody who was swindled out of something. A path of recourse for them wouldn't that be great? Uh, so I, I, I think this is healthy, and I also think that, like again, this is really really early days, and uh, so any kind of small thing that happens, seemingly small here, sets precedent for the future. And so we're just going to see, we're going to see which way this one goes, and and I would expect the the ripples and waves uh of of this little you know whatever little pebble gets dropped in the water here to have very far reaching uh and long lasting effect yeah i wonder i wonder what the impact on ethereum is if they actually make the decision to do the code the code rollback solution i wonder if it in some way invalidates that as a platform uh to the wider to the people who get what this stuff is all about, I think that will be a pretty dangerous path to go down. Mm -hmm. It feels like at some point somebody might make the decision to say, look, Ethereum is now dead and we need something different because, yeah. because we can't trust that body of people anymore. They haven't acted in the best interest of the technology. They've, asked, they've acted in the best interest of the squeaky wheels in this case. And it'll be interesting to see how it, how it all shakes out. But I think the, what's interesting, what's great for me is that, uh, is that you get to, we get to see all of this stuff play out and we're living through the birth and all of the growing pains of what I believe is fundamentally, you know, game changing technology. And we're just dealing with all of the things that you have to deal with. And I think it's a, for people who don't want to get scared by, you know, the fact that, you know, $50 million was lost. If you just take a step back and just take it for what it is, which is it's just a bump along the way. And, and we can't, we can't just simply say, well, that's the end of that. And we got to go back to this old broken stodgy thing that we've had for hundreds of years. There's, we're on the path to something that's fundamentally better, I believe. And so I, I'm hoping that the, that the, community and everybody makes just continues to make good decisions through through all of this yeah yeah i think that's well said that's 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 exactly right yeah good stuff yeah good all times right. thanks for <laughs> thanks everybody for listening and uh, we'll be back with another show soon